You're listening to Fun Shack, the podcast, episode six. Today I'm speaking with Sarah Sandstrom, a partner at Campbell Lutchins and head of the firm's North American private equity fund placement activities. Sarah is based in New York and came to see us in London to talk about her views on the fundraising landscape for 2020, best practices for investor relations, and the secrets to a successful process. I hope you enjoy. Hello, Sarah. Welcome to Fun Shack. Happy to be here, Ross. So could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Happily. Uh, My name is Sarah Sandstrom. I've now been in the fundraising field for over 20 years. Um, I grew up in Seattle. I uh, went to Brown University and then started at DLJ, uh, first in investment banking. And then I joined the DLJ private fund group in 1999. So I've been solely focused on private equity fundraising since then. Um, I was at the DLJ Credit Suisse for 11 years in the fundraising area and then uh, worked at a boutique firm, then Lazard, and joined Campbell Lutchens about uh, three and a half years ago to really spearhead the firm's efforts in US, U.S. private equity. So 1999, that's for a young industry, that's a fairly long time ago. You've seen it develop significantly in, in that time. Yes, and through uh, several different cycles, which is always a, a fascinating element uh, of, uh, of career development. Absolutely. And so maybe we could jump right up to today because it's December 2019. So as we go into the 2020s, how would you characterize the appetite for private market asset classes among the institutional investor world? We are really seeing robust demand, uh, not only in private equity, but also in uh, related asset classes like infrastructure and private credit, uh, for example. And in uh, private equity generally, um, there is really a a bit of a crunch on new uh, allocations. So. Historically, investors, um, you know, many years ago, when they looked at their allocations for private equity, maybe it was around 50-50 of new commitments to uh, existing commitments or re-ups. And we did a survey at Campbell Etchins, um over the last few months, and one of the takeaways of that was that now there's only about 25% of an allocation of an investor's uh, private equity allocation that's reserved for new commitments. So it's about 75-25, and I think for a lot of programs in the U.S., it feels a lot more like 90-10 in terms of 90% of the wallet is going to re-up commitments in the upcoming year. And that's really driven by two uh, the, the confluence of two factors. Uh, first of all, f- fund sizes are increasing. So it's about 40% increase on average uh, from 2016 to today in terms of the fund sizes. So wow, that's a massive increase, 40%, right, 40% in three or four mm-hmm. years. So investors are looking to raise quite a bit more money um, for, their, for their successor funds. And then in addition, you have um, the factors around uh, a contracting period of when investors, uh, when general partners come back to the market. These blind pool of private equity funds that we raise, typically they have a five-year investment life. 
And it's usually, usually most of them, historically, uh, there's about a four-year period between when a fund closed and, and you raise the next fund. Mm. Another interesting takeaway from the campbell Etchen survey was that that is now down to 2.85 years. So investors are coming back to the market much faster, that going from about just under five years to just under three years. Mm. And when they come back, they're raising more money. Mm. So that the, the confluence of those two factors have really led to this stress on investor wallets being so much of private equity allocations are going to existing managers. So that's one of the dynamics that we're watching very closely as we head into 2020. Uh, because I think we believe in that as a result of that, people have already, and really for the past quarter or so, have tried to reserve allocations for themselves in 2020. So the question will be how much of the, you know, the wallet, so to speak, is uh, predetermined and mm. will close in the first quarter of 2020 or in the first half of 2020. So I think we expect the first half to be very robust in fundraising numbers um, because there is this sort of sprint to make claim uh, to uh, those allocations. It sounds, you make it sound almost as if it's a foregone conclusion that the, these, these managers are gonna uh, raise the money in 2020, that they're re-ups, everyone wants more of it. Is that the case? It's kind of like a gold rush. You're an established manager. You're lining up your investors, and they're all going to slot into place. Um, it is definitely not a foregone conclusion for everyone. I think that there is a, a top tier of managers who have performed incredibly well, um, both in U.S. private equity um, as well as, of course, European private equity, Asian private equity, um, that are very much in demand. Uh, you know, to some degree, we are in an asset class that favors scale. Um, and some of the managers that, um, that can accommodate that scale are incredibly attractive. Uh, the market, however, is very discerning. And generally, um, generally, managers have performed well during this kind of sustained bull market period. Um, but um, particularly for emerging managers, um, it is very challenging to get new funds raised. It continues to be um, an arduous process, one where um, many managers either take a lot longer to get raised than they uh, would have wanted or have to pivot to other strategies rather than initially raising a blind pool fund um, because the market is very discerning. But it seems to me that everyone I speak to seems to rave about how they have an emerging market strategy, uh, not emerging <laughs> market, sorry, emerging manager strategy and you yes. know, they have a special you know, expertise right. identifying talent. And yet in reality, it sounds like the structural makeup of the market is that there's just a, a limited pool for those types of offerings. Yeah, I think um, I think part of it is the number of emerging managers that are seeking capital and um, and the varied strength of those stories. So w within emerging managers, you have everything from a team that may have worked together for twenty years, may have ha may have an attributable track record, um, really checks the boxes of team strategy and track record. So a very advanced. Uh, emerging manager. And then you could also have 
to people spinning out without really a proven strategy, without a track record, without any time working together. So I think that, w- that we continue to feel that feel confidence that the uh, top end of that emerging uh, manager spectrum will continue to get raised as there is ample interest. Um, we've, uh, we are uh, in the market with several emerging funds now. We love this space. We really have conviction in so many ways. It's really a gratifying um, place in the market as a fundraiser to help uh, be a partner establishing a firm. But I think that for those that don't have that sort of three pillars of team track record and strategy very clearly articulated, they might find that they might need to do some deals first, maybe fundless sponsor deals, maybe consider um, a special arrangement with an anchor investor rather than the traditional blind pool fund. And from a fund investor's perspective, are there many of these types of opportunities to look at? Are there a lot of <clears throat> prospective emerging managers hitting the road? Definitely, definitely. It, I think it sort of probably peaked about a year ago, but there are a lot. And for, I think there's several reasons for that. You know, part of it is that um, private equity is not always, say, a field of enlightened generational transfer. Um, so you have had um, you know, people perhaps of a certain age in their careers and given the, the sustained positive market that I've, uh, you know, who have accumulated enough personal wealth to now be able to uh, fund more of an entrepreneurial uncertain venture. So you have kind of the, the market um, factors, you have the factors around the generational transfer, the um, aging of the industry, if you will, um, and you have the appetite for emerging managers as, as three factors that have sort of fed into this uh, mm. this this boiling pot of uh, a, a lot of uh, uh, people seeking to become fund managers. It's got to be a really healthy thing for the industry, doesn't it? At a time particularly when you're getting so many brand name private equity groups with many, many products. There's still this, uh, let's say, this evolution at the, mm-hmm. at the bottom. I mean, that's got to be healthy. Right. I, I absolutely agree. Yes. Yeah. Um, it sounds like then that um, private equity firms have been investing money at a frenetic rate. Mm-hmm. Have they been returning it at a similarly frenetic rate? Um. You know, distributions have have remained strong um, ne- for many uh, of of the past recent years. Um, we were in the position where distributions were um, outpacing drawdowns. That has now uh, leveled out uh, to be much more on parity. Uh, so that it, it, that has been a shift in the market. Um, I think we're all watching to see how that uh, how that stat trends um, yeah. in 2020, um, if it continues and perhaps goes more negative in that uh, uh, mm. in that in that uh, in investing outpacing distributions. Mm. Um, it's something we monitor closely, um, but um, so far we haven't seen that. I think on a macro level, too much impact. Um, Investments, but I would say that that could change if we have a jolt in the uh, in the capital markets or something like that. What we have seen on that uh, a related topic is 
that investors are certainly, when they look at a, one specific manager, are quite focused on that manager's ability to return capital, to, uh, to, to distribute. At some point, what I'm getting to is, is the gold rush going to end? Could it end? And what could bring about an ending to the appetite? Oh, if I only knew. <laughs> um, uh, yes, I think, it, you know, inevitably things will cycle. And uh, what we've seen in the past uh, during periods of uh, market dislocation is that just things kind of stop. Um, private equity um, generally, given that you have more flexibility around time in your investments. So we've seen the asset class um, perform relatively well across cycles, though holding periods do tend to get stretched out for investments um, made at that time. It also, uh, because uh, funds have five-year investment periods and maybe with the pace of coming back, they're only investing in three of them. But some funds that might invest pre a crisis will also have the benefit of having capital to invest post-crisis. So uh, we saw m a lot of that through the global financial crisis. You had funds that were kind of the tale of two cities funds, where you had the pre-crisis investments and the post-crisis investments. Um, but yes, it's it. Uh, uh, we have we have been living in very sanguine times in private equity, and uh, we we are in a, in a uh, inherently cyclical business. Um, so um, you know, I, I I don't think anyone would think that that this will uh, continue indefinitely. Yeah, so that's a prudent position to take. It's just that uh, everyone I speak to seems to be. Um, preparing for uh, like some imminent downturn, and yet it's not obvious <laughs> no, where that's coming from. Exactly. So, no, it's so funny. So. We uh, I looked at some stats about uh, questions of, of okay, so do you expect the downturn to be in the next twelve months or further out? And it was about forty percent in the next twelve months, sixty percent. Uh, further out. And then it sort of has been at the same, like if you go back a year previous, a year previous. So this sense of things do seem r fully valued. Um, that's kind of the, the consensus of the market. And yet, and yet when there seems to be absolutely no consensus on and what might trigger that is pretty yeah. tricky. So you said the average return to market time is now about two and a half, three years. So the average manager last raised money if they last raised money in 2017, they're coming to market in 2020. Mm -hmm. Anyone coming back, as I mentioned at the onset, this scarcity of new capital commitments means that I think people will be at advantage that, that either pre-market in uh, the fourth quarter and come out in the first half of the year. Those that launch fundraising processes in the second half of the year might find that investors might be very supportive, but just out of allocation and might have to say, well, you know, can we have the closing in 2021 as, as I'm just out of money? Um, you know, it's interesting. We're seeing certainly interest in some sectors. Um, uh, I think if you look through those that performed or have the perception of performing well, uh, uh, throughout uh, different financial markets. Um, 
Uh, branded consumer is is an example of a sector that performed quite well. Um, uh, you know, to be differentiated from discretionary yeah. consumer, very different. Um, healthcare is one that um, that performed uh, quite well. So I think you know, if you if you are in some of those sectors, you will have some um, uh, some tailwinds. Um, there's been a lot of money raised in technology. It's incredibly exciting. You know, there are uh, a lot of generalist funds that are doing more technology. This idea that sort of, you know, software is swallowing the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and that being said, some investors um, have said, if you look through my portfolio, not only uh, do I have a lot of technology managers, but a lot of my generalists are doing technology. So I am somewhat, uh, one manager gave me the example of being about 80%, uh, having 80% exposure to the tech sector if you sort of go deep into the portfolio. And so in that case, they're looking for diversification away from tech, though tech has gen- has, has been such a driver of returns. And I think that um, you know, it, it, it's still a very exciting sector to be investing in. So um, LPs, it sounds from what you're saying that they're quite sector focused. They're like, like drilling into the sectors. Mm-hmm. So I was speaking with uh, Jim Strang a few months ago and we were talking about the private equity playbook. The fact that over the years um, there has developed this. It's not that everyone has the same strategy, but there, are, there is a kind of a broad consensus about what works and what doesn't in the, in the private equity world. As a, as a placement agent helping people market funds, to what extent are you conscious of that kind of consensus and how nervous are you when people deviate from it? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it is a balancing act. You know, fundraising is much more uh, art than science, we find. Um, and uh, we have you know, really the privileged opportunity to look at many different managers with many different strategies. And so we are not um, adverse to the uh, innovative, um, but uh, when we are choosing which managers to uh, bring on to the Campbell Lutyens platform, um, we are uh, very deliberate and really want to understand the rationale behind the strategy, the rationale behind uh, the value creation playbook. Um, and it might be quite different from one strategy to another, uh, inherent on a, pr- a particular sector being different, inherent on a team's competitive uh, advantages. So we're open to different things, um, but I but I do think that there are you know the evidence that you are taking a company and really growing it, um, uh, or uh, fixing addressable problems. You know there are certainly uh, themes uh, that resonate uh, throughout the majority uh, of value creation philosophies. Mm. Yeah, the, the thing with private equity is it can all look the same at a really superficial level, but as soon as you drill <laughs> down, it's very very different internally. Well, that's that gives us a really good overview of what the the broad markets about, but I'm really interested to understand about your work as a placement agent and how you do what you do. So um, maybe to kick that bit off, do you have any thoughts on best practices around uh, what managers and IR professionals should do in between fundraisings in order to make life as easy as possible in the long run? Right, right. 
Well, you know, I, uh, I guess from a very big picture, I think the most critical part of fundraising is to realize that it is a relationship building exercise. That if you enter a room as a manager and think it is about proving to everyone in the room that you are the smartest person in the room, you've, you know, you've, you've, you've lost the game before you even set a foot on the field. It is in many ways more like a political process um, where you are building relationships and converting champions in your investors and and really bringing them on on side, communicating to them uh, your vision, uh, where you see the opportunities, what you're doing with your investments. Um, So in terms of the uh, ways to capitalize on that period uh, once a, a closing ends and um, and before you're raising your next fund, I think the most important thing is just to be very relationship oriented and transparent with your investors. Um, we always encourage all of our managers to. Uh, usually, it's you know once a summer when things are a bit slower in between the peak annual meeting seasons in the in the spring and the fall, to go on a on a summer charm offensive, to um, you know go, see in person each of your existing investors and those that maybe you got close to last time, but weren't able to close capital on, and. Um, and be transparent about um, what you're seeing, what's exciting, um, but also with what what worries you. And to take that opportunity when you're not making a sale, when you're not focused on an actionable next step and moving to someone into a fundraising process to really develop the relationship with your investors. Because mm. they're partners, really, rather than customers. Absolutely. So Absolutely. Sense. And you know, so much of it in private equity is really structural to the product. I mean, a private equity fund is a blind pool where you have five years to invest, you know, usually 10 years or, you know, longer in in many cases to harvest it. And as a limited partner, you have very little discretion over uh, what a manager is investing in. So there's this... um, blank check aspect. So fundraising is a bit of an inefficient process. And that is purposeful because it's an opportunity for a manager, for a potential uh, investor to spend time together, often, you know, many different meetings over months, um, you know, sometimes years to develop that relationship um, that engenders that trust uh, to earn a commitment from that investor. One of my clients said to me recently that private equity funds aren't sold anymore. That is a very interesting comment. Um, yes. Yeah, and it's and it made me think actually. One of the things I was thinking of before this interview was that placement agent is a strange term anyway. It's, <laughs> it's, but it's not sales agent and never was. It's placement agent. Right. Or, you know, so you place a fund and you you could be raising agent. But no, that that sounds like something you'd have in the kitchen. So, <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but it's yes, like, it, I guess to an extent, they were never sold. But it sounds increasingly from what I hear that, that, that it's much more relationship driven. than It really is. I think of it as a bit of matchmaking. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and, it, you know, the, the placement agent field, certainly part of it is that um, the 
introduction between investor um, and manager and that sales process and that relationship building process and all the information that is required. But then um, we, uh, particularly at Campbell Etchens, really emphasize um, both the advisory and execution element of being a placement agent. So we sit down with our clients, we uh, discuss specific objectives for the fundraise, we discuss strategic plans, and um, and pay close attention to positioning. Because fundamentally, um, fundraisings either have momentum or they don't. Mm. And we try to orchestrate an every way and every little trick that we can, um, a process that is is designed to um, achieve and then retain momentum. That's very interesting. So I think that's because I operate in marketing and I think marketing is key. Uh, momentum is key in marketing mm-hmm. as well. I think in any complex and inefficient domain, um, you need momentum and because to an extent, no one knows what the right answer is. And so there is a logic behind doing what the other guy just did. And I think that is the logic behind gaining momentum. You have to, you have to uh, win over a few key influences. And I guess this goes back to your political process. Mm-hmm. Right. That actually is. I think that's actually right, that it's more political than hard-nosed marketing. Right. Right. No, it, and it's uh, it's fascinating to see the, the psychology um, of it. And, uh, you know, it, it usually particularly for first-time funds, it's, it's the critical question is who are going to be those, those first closers in your first-time fund? Who are going to be those few investors that take that risk and, and build conviction early? Um, do they need to be rewarded in some way uh, for uh, taking that position? And, um, and, and in first-time funds, that's really the challenge. In uh, funds, funds twos, threes, and so forth, it's much more about motivating your existing investors, which by and large will be the majority of yeah. the first closing of the subsequent fund. Um, at Campbell Lutchens, we are huge believers in process, in deadlines, in that deadlines when fairly uh, – when a fair timetable is communicated – we think just helps everyone organize their workflow. Um, and so um, that's one of the many ways that we find. It's, it's not sort of saying, hurry up, hurry up, this is closing in two weeks. It's saying this is going to be the deliberate step-by-step timeline of, uh, of the different phases of the, of the fundraising process. Right. So again, it's kind of an anti-sales sell, not like last chance to... <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> um, I hate to ask this, having you know spoken in such terms about partnership, but where do you sit, if anywhere, on, on structural issues? Because obviously the, the industry has, has its, um, its traditions in terms of how an LPA is structured. But right. within that, again, there's many, many layers. So mm-hmm. do you have any thoughts on the st- structural terms is what I mean. Sure. Um, well, we work with our clients to devise an appropriate uh, term package for them. Um, we give them guidance on what we believe is market. We have fantastic relationships with our partners in the fund formation community. 
um, that help give us an informed view of what market is mm -hmm. so that each manager can make that selection of do they want to go out f market uh, perhaps more GP friendly, perhaps more LP friendly. You know, we give them guidance within that spectrum. I think an important element of any terms discussion is that it's really a package of terms. So you might say, well, the number one thing that's important to me is my management fee because I have a young team, um, I have a strategy that needs to be built out. So every dollar of management fee is so critical for me at this point. But I'm willing to perhaps sacrifice on a few other terms um, to, as a whole, be a very market offering, but where I might have a slightly um, slightly more management fee and give up slightly some other economic terms to balance it out. So. Um, I think it, it is interesting from a big picture perspective that while the power dynamic between LPs and GPs um, does uh, certainly shift uh, and shifts quite significantly over cycles, in terms of actual term, the standard term package, I would say it's it's remained relatively consistent. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we've seen a few uh, very um, just the highest outperforming firms really innovate with better term packages uh, for themselves. Um, they're in the privileged position to do that. Um, but it, it by and large hasn't spread uh, throughout the market. Mm. I, I think one of the reasons that private equity is successful is that it tends, it doesn't overcomplicate things that don't have to be overcomplicated. <laughs> but um, is there, do you, not, do you think there's an element in terms of the terms where it's not just a binary thing where what's good for the GP isn't good for the LP and vice versa, but where you could tinker with the terms to change the return profile. So, for example, um, lower the hurdle but get more more carry. Or so you're not saying I, I just want I'm just being greedy. You're saying I really back myself, um, and if I do really really well, then you know, then I'll get more. But then I'll lower. Do you see what I mean? It's not just trying to get more and more. It's it's to say. Well, these are very kind of rigid, 8% hurdle, 20% carry. Does that, is that going to get the best out of us? Right. No, and I absolutely agree that alignment, alignment is kind of at the core of what um, a good term package should be. And we have seen s some managers come back with options for investors where you sort of have the somewhat standard option or an option where there is something like a preferred incentive fee, yeah. um, where if uh, an investor does have the flexibility to pay enhanced carry, um, that, uh, that they could choose that option. And, um, and, and so that's a way that we've, we've seen managers innovate, um, but provide an option. You know, they're right. innovating, but they're not saying, uh, to an institutional investor, if you have the inability to back an enhanced carried fund, you no longer can invest with us. You have the option. Um, but uh, I think options where you have that enhanced alignment um, is a, a, a very exciting uh, development. Yeah. Okay. Great. So if you were a, a GP, a manager, what kind of vehicle would you want to be raising in 2020? What do you think there's most appetite for? Maybe 
and I'm quite interested not only in terms of strategies, but also if there's any distinction between the amount that you'd be raising. Right. Oh, well, that is a very interesting question. Um, I, um, I, I spend a lot of time with general partners. I have never been one myself. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that, um, uh, yeah, a, f- a few ideas. Yeah. I mean, I think that, as I mentioned before, I think healthcare and branded consumer are very interesting areas now. Um, I do think that there is usually a little bit of a gap between a fund target and a fund cap. Um, and um, being a little bit more conservative about what you're targeting um, and ensuring that you have a successful fund is something that I think is very important. Um, you know, w- w- one of my um, precious uh former colleagues used to always say, you know, it's not when you start, it's when you end and in in a fundraising process, right? And so often um, we're advising our clients that, you know, wait three months for the realization to happen and then hit the market when you have, when you're absolutely best positioned to make a strong first impression. Those three months, You'll, you know, it's usually at least a year-long process. You know, th- yeah. the, the, those three months at the end, it's just going to allow us to have a stronger fundraise with momentum. So, um, you know, again, art science, it's more yes. a judgment of when a firm is at that optimal time to really get out and, um, and tell the story. Um, I think an interesting angle, um, personally, one of the areas, uh, probably one of the very few underserved areas in uh, U.S. private equity is the women and uh, minority manager space, um, where there are quite a few um, pockets of um, investor capital um, that are set aside to to back firms that um, have that uh, profile, um, but unfortunately, precious few. Um, and so I think that is an opportunity. Um, I would just absolutely love to see uh, more uh, women, more uh, minorities um, uh, develop um, and start uh, firms in the private equity space. Absolutely. Great. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for sparing your thoughts for FundShack. It's been a real pleasure. The pleasure is all mine. You've been listening to the Fund Shack podcast. Make sure you subscribe and visit our website at fund-shack.com for many more video interviews. It's the private capital channel for alternative investment professionals. Thanks for listening.